Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to the PAP11 podcast today. We have an amazing show. I would like to welcome back Raymond Moody, who is one of our guests today. And we interviewed Raymond with a woman by the name of Lisa Smart. It is episode 189, a couple of hundred episodes back from this one. But if you are interested in listening to that podcast episode after you hear this one, I invite you to go back there. It is all about the Final Words Project. It is amazing. But today, I have Raymond on with a good friend of his who has co-authored many books with him, Paul Perry. So we are going to be discussing their newest book called Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe There is an Afterlife. We are also going to hit on topics in this show of OBEs, out-of-body experiences, shared death experiences, also abbreviated as SDE, and NDE, which many people are familiar with, near-death experiences as well. So I'd like to give you a little bit of background about the two people, but first, I am going to say to you, if you are new to this topic of the afterlife, I'm going to say to you what my guest Paul Perry's agent said to him before he knew Raymond Moody, which is, you need to know these guys. So let me give you a little bit of background about who they are, if this is the first time you are hearing their names. Raymond Moody, Jr., MD, PhD, is the leading author of Near-Death Experiences and the author of several books, including the seminal Life After Life. The founder of the Life After Life Institute, Moody has lectured on the topic throughout the world and is a counselor in private practice. He received his medical degree from the College of Georgia and his PhD from the University of Virginia. He has appeared on many programs, including Today and Turning Point. Find out more about Raymond's work at lifeafterlife.com, and we will put his website in the show notes. And our second guest, Paul Perry, has co-written several New York Times bestsellers, including The Light Beyond and Evidence of the Afterlife. He is also a documentary filmmaker, and for his film and book about Salvador Dali, he has been knighted in Portugal. He is also a graduate of Arizona State University and Antioch University, and you can find out more about him at paulperryproductions.com. So I would like to welcome you both to the Path 11 podcast. And Raymond, welcome back. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the folks watching too. Yes. Now I know you guys, between the both of you, have over 60 years of observation, research, interviews, personal experiences, and uh, bringing this book together, Proof of Life After Life, uh, has been a great read. I really enjoyed reading it. And I would uh, love to give the background of maybe how you guys decided to come together for this book, even though you've co-written many together, and what made you decide to bring this topic together in trying to let people know that there are seven reasons to believe that there is an afterlife? Well, well, let me start out if I can. Near-death experiences are amazing events, as you know. You know, people leave their body, they see what's going on around them. 
They go up a tunnel, they see dead relatives, and, and they encounter a bright light that is full, as children often say, it's full of all the good things. But the problem with a near-death experience, at least if you're going for proof, is that it's subjective. The person who has a near-death experience is really the only one who can describe their near-death experience. But there's a type of experience that we've encountered over the years. We've written six books together, and in all the books we've written, we always have reference to shared death experiences. And a shared death experience is when a dying person shares their death experience with at least one other person. And that makes it an objective experience because it has it has a witness to it. And so we started to look at those, and we we as you can see from the book, we divided it up into seven, essentially seven chapters, categorizing types of shared death experiences. And then in the middle of doing this, we both had our own shared death experiences as well. And that really convinced us that that there is something going on here that really we haven't touched on yet. So essentially what this book is about is, is objective near-death experiences. And it changes the whole field in so many ways. Yeah, and I, I'd like to just ask a quick question about the shared death experience, because we did have um, a gentleman on about the shared crossing projects, whose name is escaping me right now, Peter it's Williams. Will Peters. Oh, oh, yes. Will, Will Peters, yeah. Yes, um, I got it um, turned around there. And I know that they collected a lot of accounts of, of shared death experiences. I think some of the stories collected you know, or most of them were subjective in nature. Some people just having a vision themselves with the person who was dying, but, and no other person witnessing it. So what I found credible in, you know, your stories here with the shared experience that I feel kind of like everything holds water, but with Raymond's story that he shared about his mom and how many people were in the room and witnessed the same exact thing, it seems when you have multiple people witnessing or having the same type of experience when a person is making that transition, that probably seems to be where the researchers like to go because then there's multiple witnesses of accounts of witnessing the same thing as opposed to maybe me sitting with my grandmother, she's actively dying, and I do take her over that threshold, and I experience that, but nobody else is in the room. Right. Yeah. And another factor in this, April, is that the the line between the afterlife and the next, uh, and this life has been shifting, and the and and. The reason has a lot to do with these near-death experiences. It's uh, these experiences as have always been known. They are part of the foundation of Western thought with the Greek philosophers who studied them. Uh, but in those days, the, it was an extremely rare phenomenon. It was the average state of somebody who came near death was that oh, they were no. gone. But then in the 60s, and voila, we have, you know, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And then in the, in, in the 70s, it becomes in every hospital. And pretty soon, you know, in the buildings, they have the little break the glass thing. And so suddenly what had been extremely rare just becomes a 
you know, just raft of people all at once having this. And that's where I came in. See, people pat me on the back for, oh, well, brilliant. But, you know, the fact is, it's I came about this and by learning about it in philosophy, then heard a living person, Dr. George Ritchie. Then, you know, and at the time, as I started talking about this in my philosophy classes, the students had had experiences or new people, my colleagues, and it quickly, you know, it was obvious that suddenly this huge number of people, and now 50 years later, it's even more so. So we're in a situation now where I'm, I'm assuming practically everybody has some, you know, intimate acquaintance or friend or relative who's, who's had this experience and or a, a shared death experience. So what was once exquisitely rare is now becoming part of the common sense scenario, see, is that. And that's kind of what I had in mind about getting this book out at this time, that there's this vast upwelling of curiosity that I see, partly because of the three million, I think it was, who died of the in the COVID in, uh, in, in uh, the United States, and then all the grieving people left behind. Then plus all those people coming into midlife, and it's just a natural thing, as Plato and many others observe, that midlifers start thinking about these things. Jung was saying one time, he said, just son, I don't know where, but he said these ideas of an afterlife just well up in me. And talking about his midlife, and that's what happens to people. So all of those things together, I think this is time to bring this together for people and to ask the basic question that people have been asking me since I was a philosophy professor in the late 60s is Raymond. It's like, is there, is there, can there be a proof? Well, I used to answer people and talking about David Hume and, and the skeptics, and but I realize people don't want to talk about symbolic logic. They're just asking, basically, is it a rational thing to anticipate and expect that when you die, you will go into another world? And I say, yeah, I give up. I mean, I I can't think my way out of that one. If you really think through this stuff, it's uh, you're kind of boxed in in a way. I mean, I'm pretty clever at thinking of alternate explanations, but I give up on this one. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I was reading your book, an idea came to mind when you guys were also talking about just the ethics of of studying this. And I'm also familiar with Christopher Kerr's work with the Deathbed Visions. I'm sure you guys have, you know, heard of that work before too. And, you know, when I had interviewed him, it really seemed like these are the people who are right on the veil of making that transition, yeah. who we really need to be interviewing because they are there in that world and this world. That is right on. That's yeah. And so I thought to myself, you know, we just need to like develop hospitals where there is already permission ethically and getting doctors together who are housing people who are actively dying and families who are willing to participate in them being videotaped, recorded for the study of this field and to be open about it and willing to participate. Because I remember Christopher Kerr saying not one family member and not one person that was actively dying that they approached said no to be videotaped, you know, and to 
document here. And I think like that evidence there is so important as well as, you know, the evidence that you guys are showing and talking about in your book with the shared death experiences. I think, you know, those are equally as important as those deathbed visions that people are having as well. So just wanted to share my thought with you on that. Yeah. And, you know, as a person, I was sort of recruited into this deathbed scene as a medical student because I had talked about these near-death experiences to many medical students that was kind of that's not their thing. So I got the privilege of being assigned to all my, my professors to talk with the terminally ill people. And you quickly get to realize in that situation that these people are definitely somewhere, but it's not here. I mean, I, you know, right. they're talking from somewhere else. It's it's just, you know, like you're feeling like something is transmitting here from elsewhere through these people. And, and it's in a clear state of consciousness. I remember in 1980, I walked into this elderly lady. She's about the age I am now. <laughs> And uh, she was there lying in her bed with that big old Victorian cap like the queen used to wear. And and she was talking to her dead relatives. Obviously, when I came in the room, and she immediately shifted attention. Breezy, oh, Dr. Moody, I know what you're thinking. This old lady is talking out of her head. And I said, no, ma'am. <laughs> you know, I, I'm beginning to get it. <laughs> You know, that it does happen. People talk to their dead loved ones as they're passing away. Or sometimes they start singing even, or, or reciting poetry. Mm. Yeah, so this might be a good segue, too. Paul, would you like to talk a little bit about the topic in your book of terminal lucidity? Yes. I've, you know, been at the bedside of people actively dying and my aunt being one of them we thought she was getting ready to take her last breath and then all of a sudden she opens up her eyes she's like what are you guys looking at and she's like can i have some ice cream we're like well you're not supposed to eat ice cream you know she's on hospice and she goes well what do you think's the worst thing is going to happen you know that she dies if she eats it and then she had her ice cream and then shortly after you know just kind of went back into transitioning and then you know made her way over but you know my grandmother had a similar experience too where she was right at the end of life and you know was really not coherent at that time but just kind of woke up and all of a sudden she's talking to us and I know that this is documented so many times and and even in people what I liked in your book too was talking about you know, the difference between there really being no brain activity, like scientifically, and consciousness still coming into the person, and they shouldn't be talking medically or have the ability to talk. And then all of a sudden, these kind of last moments happen. So I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Well, terminal lucidity is defined as a flash of life that takes place shortly before death. It's only been recently defined. It's been given a name and been given certain definitions. And that's why you're starting to see more and more people report them. It's the same way with near-death experiences. When Raymond named and defined the NDE, all of a sudden everyone starts saying, well, I had that. I just didn't think it was cool to talk about it. Mm. And, and there's, it ends up becoming millions of people who, who have spoken about it since then. So terminal lucidity is the newest of, of this type of experience, people are going to start talking about terminal lucidity now because it's okay. It's got a name. And a, a great example of terminal lucidity, I've seen it myself, but there's a, a great example of it 
kind of the textbook example is, is from a woman named Catherine Emmer, who in Germany in, in the 30s, she had had meningitis as a child. And as a result, she had never spoken. She was not coherent. She grunted. She fouled her bed. She was a mess for, for 30, 30 some years. And then all of a sudden, one day, she wakes up and she starts singing. And she had been in an institution her entire life. So all the doctors were amazed and they came from all over this institution and many of the patients as well because they had befriended her. And she started singing a song. And, and one of the, the song ended with, where does the soul find its home? Where does it find its peace? And she kept saying that over and over again, but she was extremely coherent, very lucid. And that's one great example. That, that changed the politics of, of Germany in many ways, because the, the, the doctors were members of the National Socialist Party. They were pre-Nazis, as it were. And they had wanted to start killing mental patients because they felt that they had not, no personhood anyway. You may as well get rid of them. And these guys started speaking out against that. And they would go to these National Socialist conferences and talk about Catherine Emmer and how she did obviously have, have personhood. It was just locked in there somewhere. And, and dying somehow freed that up. And it changed their point of view, at least at, at that point, about what, uh, what they should do with mental patients. I experienced one one time when my son was in the hospital and he had had a motorcycle accident. He broke his femur. So he was in a hospital room and across the hall was a man who was had very bad dementia. Uh, they had moved him there because he was considered terminal. They'd moved him into the hospital. And so I would go in every day to see my son and I would observe this guy. I'd try to talk to him sometimes and he wasn't really coherent. And then one day I went in and sat down with my son and he was standing on top of his bed. His family was all around him. And he was talking to each one directly and clearly, one after the other, about the family, what they felt, how he felt about them, what he was going to give them in his, in his will, things like that. We went around to all seven members of the family. They were amazed. They thought they could then take him home because they thought he was well. And the next day I came in to see my son and his bed was empty and he had passed away a few hours after his family left. That's a typical pathway for terminal lucidity. It's, it's, it shows up in the, in the waning moments of a person's life. So someone who has TL generally doesn't last more than a few hours or maybe a day or so. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that was my experience too, witnessing yeah. that personally. Yeah. So, but, but what is interesting about it, I'm sorry, mm, is yes, go. there... In many extreme examples of terminal lucidity, people have a head full of tumors. They're, they have no brain waves, or they've had a trauma. And yet, somehow, this consciousness comes back. And in certain researchers, us included, have looked at this as being a sign that consciousness can separate from the body and still survive. And I think that a lot of the cases we've dealt with and deal with in the book uh, uh, mention that. Yeah, I like the term. I have it bookmarked somewhere here on the PDF, but that the anesthesia is like the medicine of the dead. 
Is, is that the term that the doctors would call it? And, you know, that's also one of the points that you guys also made in believing that the consciousness does exist outside the body, where people should not be able to look inside the operating room and see themselves when they are under that anesthesia. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, Jeff Long called it that the, the sleep of the dead. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was. And, yeah. And he was saying, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know how people leave their body. I don't know they have any consciousness at all. And so, yeah, that's, that's another amazing factor at all, which we, we deal with a lot in the book too. Yeah. So I'd like to, the one chapter that I really liked was the one that was discussing the lights, the music, and the mist, you know, during these shared death experiences. And the music part was very, you know, vital for me to read on a couple of different levels. And I wanted to share a small story with you guys about this. One was I was working with a patient of mine who was actively dying. And I, I was a mental health therapist for many years and also now do more energy healing and sound healing for people. So I was at my client's home while she was dying. And one of the last sessions that I gave her I would usually come and put meditation music on and, and, you know, work on her. And this time I hadn't brought my phone out yet. She's like, oh, the music you're playing is so beautiful. And we, her daughter and I and, you know, cousin looked and they're like, what music, ma? And she's like, oh, you don't hear the music? And we're like, no, I'm like, I haven't put it on yet. So I have experienced that, you know, where someone was hearing this music that you guys also noted in your book. And another interesting experience that I had was with a pregnant woman who was nine months pregnant and she was ready for this baby to come. And she's like, if you can give me some Reiki and make this baby come tonight, that would be great. So she's in my office and I'm, I go into this deep meditation with her and, you know, just providing some healing energy. And I was shown this most beautiful vision of what would look like two angels with a threshold providing music. And I was told that this is the musical threshold that the dead pass through when they leave and the, the, the people who are being born come through before they are born. And that music was this integral part of the birth and afterlife process. And I saw like the guides, whoever this is, working with the baby and allowing the baby's soul to get used to the music to begin to bring it closer to earth. And basically the guides were saying like, there is a process and you have to tell her to not rush it. Like there is a process and we're working with it. But this musical threshold vision that I had and saw in this healing was just amazing. And I felt like I walked out of there having this grand understanding of this music that people talk about that they hear, but I had no idea that it existed for people coming in, for the souls coming yeah. in. So when I was reading this portion of the book of, you know, the music, and then thinking back to some of my experiences, especially in that session with that pregnant woman, I was like, gosh, did I make this up? Am I just seeing this in my mind? It, it wasn't something that I felt like I could make up, but it was so fascinating to me. And reading this book and this part in your book really solidified like, all right, I don't feel like I'm crazy anymore. And I think that was a really real vision that I had and knowledge that was kind of given to me in understanding where music plays in this role of transitioning of of life and death. So I wanted to share that with you as a segue and a bridge into uh, the music that 
not only does the dying here, but also people who are in the room and having that shared death experience. But, you know, you should, Raymond, you should talk about Tony Socorro right now. And then we can. Yeah, yeah. There, there is a, a wonderful professor of orthopedic surgery up there where you are. Okay. And I forgot which institute, but his name is Anthony Chicoria. Anthony may be retired now from his teaching position, but he's a PhD in, in, uh, PhD in physiology in addition to his medical degree. And Anthony, in 1994, was struck in the neck by a bolt of lightning and had a cardiac arrest on the spot. And a nurse happened to be there and immediately resuscitated him. But in the interim, he got out of his body and he had a very profound near-death experience, which he describes exquisitely. He was it was at a, like a resort center, and he was having a family reunion there. So, unbeknownst to his relatives, he was, you know, in a cardiac arrest, where out of his body, he was able to go through the different places where they were and so on. And, and talking about, as many have, the, not just the reality, but the hyper-reality of this experience. It's not correct to compare this to a dream. People who have near-death experiences say that it's the opposite of a dream. That in the morning when you're waking up, coming out of the dream, you're feeling like you're coming back to reality. And people say that's how it feels with a near-death experience, except this is the dream, right? So you go into a hyper-reality. But Anthony came back, you know, from this you know, experience and had never had any interest in piano, but unaccountably developed an interest in the piano and had a recurrent dream in which he was playing the piano on a concert stage and he kept playing the same piece. So to make a long story short, you know, learned how to play the piano, learned how to transcribe music so he transcribed the piece. And now is also a concert pianist. I know he had a concert in Vienna, you know, a while back. (laughs) And, you know, that state of affairs is a reality. I mean, it happened. And yet we all have got to agree that does not fit into the consensual reality that we have imagined for ourselves here. It's a Another one of those kinds of things connected with near-death experiences that show that this world is not how it appears <laughs> at all, as, as the great, many great three thinkers of history have realized and acknowledged. Yeah, that's a great, a great story. And I've heard, you know, many other stories like that, too, with people coming back. And you guys make note of this in your book as well, with talents that they didn't have prior you know, and it does seem to be like really connected to art and music, you know, a large, large part of that as well. But yeah, Paul, anything that you'd like to share on the the music part of this? Well, we should go back. We'll go back. I'm sorry. I kind of diverted there for a minute, but, but we should go back to the, the mist, the yes, music, we, the light, if we yes, can. Yes, all, all three. I want to do talk about all three. So there's, we tried to collect and we did, we collected stories from hundreds of years ago, up until now. 
to show that these have been around for a long time. They are just invented after some after Raymond came up with a name for a shared death experience. They just didn't invent them. These have been around for a long time. And there's a incredible book from the 19th century called Phantasms of the Living. And it was put together by, I think it was three or four doctors, doctors and some psychologists. Anyway, they collected case studies. And, and then as difficult as this must have been, they collected case studies of the paranormal. And then they certified them by contacting other people who had seen or heard the same stories and who received letters at the same time that somebody died, things like that. And there's a number of them that deal with music. And and uh, there's a number of cases where people, more than one person, several people are standing around a deathbed, and they start to hear music. And once again, some of those people don't hear it, and others do hear it. And in some cases, the music has lasted for uh, several days after the person has passed away. And and people have like swept the house. They've walked all around looking for where the origin might have been. This is, you know, pre-radio, actually. And uh, they couldn't find where the music came from. But it also seems to be they always and the describe- terrible thing is they were playing off key. That was, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I just made that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Raymond Wellner, I don't want to get into his comedic background, but uh, but they would they would hear they heard this for days after. They'd hear this music for days after. No one could find the source for it or anything, but but they always describe it as being angelic, beautiful, out of this world. And people who are musicians who hear it can never quite duplicate the sound. Right. And that yeah. just drove them on. There was this fascinating study by, done by a young man who was a clinical psychologist and also a musicologist who, again, as I remember, was from upstate New York. But in 1985, I'm pretty sure it was in New York City, the American Psychological Association, Bruce Grayson and I and a couple other people presented this, you know, the, the American Psychological Association on near-death experiences. And he was one of the presenters. And his study was that he had interviewed, I think it was 17, as I recall, people who had had near-death experiences in which they had heard music. And then his study was that he would play them different segments of music, and he would say, is it more like this or more like this? And what he found was that, you know, that there were patterns and similarities, That, but the overall picture was that people say that nothing could be adequate to the, you know, that it was just, it was so ineffably beautiful. And Dr. George Ritchie, the first living person I ever heard in your death experience from, told me that same thing. He said, he said he heard this music when he was on the other side, and he was saying, and I, yeah, I, I, I just can't tell you what it's like, but he said, I'll tell you this, that it was more like Beethoven than the Beatles, is what he said. But now George was not a stodgy guy. He didn't was wasn't frowning on the Beatles. He just said it was, you know, to him it was more like Beethoven. But still indescribable. 
Yeah. You know, I've been doing a lot of research too in sound healing. That's kind of the craze out here, you know, of working with the gongs and the crystal singing bowls. And I don't, I can't recall which book it was that I read, but they talked about the third ear, similar to the people who are practicing like psychic development. You have the third eye and and working within the third eye and having that third sight where it's more of this knowing and talked about people who are able to actually hear music that you can't hear. So I find that that would just be interesting to know if there is a difference between people who have had some of these experiences and those who might have this gift of the third ear. But I also recently had a patient that experienced a concussion and she has been able to randomly hear music, all different types of music that is happening, but it doesn't sound to be the music that is described by people that can't, you can't put the words to. She's more like, well, then I'll hear drumming very or, specific. yeah, very, very specific. But she was able to identify, sometimes I'm hearing rock and roll, sometimes I'm hearing drumming, sometimes I'm yes. hearing classical music. Yeah, so I was just, you know, I don't know enough about the brain and concussions and what could cause in, that. In reality, babe. Sure. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows. That's the real deal to yeah. put this together. Yeah. It's That's like, like having all of those are philosophical assumptions underlying all that. It's sure. like it's just it's Spotify say that it, the, it. Yeah, it's just as rational to say that the consciousness generates the brain as it is to say that the brain generates consciousness. Right? Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about this mist that oh, yeah. you guys documented of people um, also having shared experiences of seeing a mist, sometimes a light that comes out of the body. And when I read about the mist, of course, my first thought goes to ectoplasm, you know, or you know those mediums that you know <laughs> would do like channeling, and then all of a sudden, you know, like this stuff would be all over and you kind of see it in some horror movies, you know, thinking about the Ghostbusters. He slimed me. So, you know, when, and you guys, I think had also talked about that, you know, if we haven't, because of the ethics have been able to actually record this or videotape this. And if we could get like a, what did you guys say? Like a vacuum cleaner hose to like suck it in and to be able to test it. But with, I, I was really curious about this part because I have had friends who had the ability to see light around people right before they were getting ready to die. But also I've had a couple of people be at the bedside of somebody taking their last breath and also feeling like something moved through them. I have yet to hear of anyone. It goes through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the mist, yeah, the mist was new. I, I don't think that I have heard of that before. So I'd love to hear more about that. Well, we have in in the book we have it, and then Raymond, I'm sure has some cases to talk about. We have a, a, a doctor. By the way, the book is full of doctor stories, yeah. which is which is different. I mean, more and more doctors are opening up, yes, admitting that they've had these kind of of experiences. Where before, you know, with the first books we wrote, you know, that's what we got from doctors. You know, get out of my office. So we had a doctor who talked about seeing the mist, and and. <laughs> Once again, he's from up in your area, by the way. So it must be something about upstate New York. But anyway, yeah. he was at the hospital late. He was in, I think he was in his residency. And he was studying in the in the lounge. And uh, the nurse came in and said, one of your patients is uh, not doing so well. She's struggling with her breath. So he went 
down to her room. The lights were out. He adjusted her oxygen. He sat there with her for a moment. And all of a sudden, this mist arose from her. I think we called it a greenish mist, but it may, it may have been some other color because we hear different ones. But let's say it was a greenish mist, rose from her body, hovered above her, close to the to the ceiling. And then and then he said it just was like sucked into a portal and it was gone. And then we started to hear other stories like that. You know, other cases where people have seen a mist arise from the, the, the body of a departing person. And I've heard them, doctors say it kind of rises up and goes, seems to disappear through the ceiling is one thing I've heard. Yeah. And it's, you know, I got to admit that not in the in a case of a patient who was dying, but in two cases in my own practice I, or my own experience, I saw that and I. You know, I, it is the visual perception of it as a mist. I saw that I saw it leave from, I hate to call him patient, although he was in that context with dear friend too. And I saw that whatever it is, it, it, you have to call it a mist. It's, and I, I think that part of this is, has to do with our inability to put a cognitive significance on it. It's because the whole symbolism of cloudiness and mistiness is is very embedded in the language. Even today, we think of clouds as a symbol of the unknown. And so, you know, I I think it's, you know, but it's, I, I do recall like the puzzle, puzzling look on the face of doctors who've told me about this. And Paul and I both know a physician in uh, Kansas who was hearing about this. And, you know, he had studied near-death experiences, but hearing about the mist, you know, what is this? So he happened to mention it to his next door neighbor. He said, oh, yeah, that that happened to me. I saw it when my my grandmother died. (laughs) So, uh, you know, these things as wacky as they sound, or nonetheless, they're part and parcel of the human experience. And it's kind of embarrassing to talk about them because you realize that it's the, it, it makes the whole framework we're in kind of shake. Mm. Yeah. It does. It's uh, very challenging because... Well, once people hear about it, I mean, I, okay, years ago, Raymond and I wrote a book called Light Beyond, and it was... It, it, what was it, 1990, something like that? 19, well, it was back there then. It was 88, I think. Well, 88, okay, yeah, Raymond has a great memory. Of I think it was 88. And I was working on the book, and I and I went out one night with a bunch of friends. I went to see a movie, and we ended up at a Denny's having, you know, the Denny's breakfast or something. And it was late at night, and they said, what are you working on? So I told them about near-death experiences. And there were like five people at the table, and, and a couple of them said, I don't believe that stuff at all. It's not the word they actually use, but they said, I don't believe in that at all. So there were about 20 people in the Denny's, and, and, and I saw, I stood up, and I told people what I was working on, described a near-death experience. Out of 20 people in the room, 15 of them had either had one or they had 
experienced them through their family or through their grandparents. They all had stories related to, to near-death experiences. Some didn't know the name near-death experience, but they knew the experience. And, and when one of them started to talk about it, it just, it was like breaking open a dam. You know, everyone started talking about. It. So that's what happens with things like, like light, music, and mist. We didn't talk about the light appearing at times when people, when people die. But that is, that's probably, you think that's the most common of all between light, mist, and music? You think the light is the most common? Yeah, I do. I mean, I just hear a lot more light than, but I, you know, you hear about a whole lot. Of it. Yeah, you hear and, about it. Uh, it's, it's, it's like what has happening is that the, as I said before, the afterlife is penetrating into this life. You are a little young to know, April, but when you get to my age or Paul's age, you you will. It's like the older you get, the you, you, more you realize the people you know your age that a greater and greater percentage of have had some sort of experience sure. of stepping over to some other world. <laughs> and and since 1975, what we have learned is the the language is is seeping through right now now people have a language a common language for uh, this experience and and the language came from the people who had it right but it's it, who had these experiences that was the commonality of their language but it's now spread out where everybody knows that basic scenario you get out of your body and go through a tunnel Right. You know, it's it's like the language has evolved that. for it. These yeah. experiences have been here, you know, through all eras of time, but now we have the language. And so that's what'll happen with shared death experiences. That I, I think it's I think it's this book will open the door to, to people to, you know, sometimes people have experiences and they ignore them or they or they just don't acknowledge that wow, I stepped across the line there and then they drop it, they take it out of their mental lexicon. But a, a, a book like this, with the, the definition of shared death experience and a number of examples, is going to free these up. We're going to start hearing them left and right now. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have been curious for a long time as to why people don't want to talk about this. And, and you know, I've, it's because I, I remember very well in 1994, I, you know, I was working with a group of scientists who were getting ready to to investigate this and and then I mean, it's just a series of things happen but it's people know about near-death experiences but why hasn't this shared death experience penetrated the public mind and what i think it is is that i think that this is very very unsettling information to a lot of people because it it brings into question the whole reality of this world we seem to be in and uh it's in in having that 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 framework for arguing about which goes back to antiquity literally plato and democritus about the same time as plato what wrote about democritus wrote about this he says oh it's all the atoms he said that body appears dead but you know there's there's atomic activity going on biological activity even when the person 
seems dead. So that's why these people come. But Plato said, oh, no, this is an indicator of an antibody. We're still stuck on the same framework, see? And the trouble with shared death experiences from that point of view is they explode the framework. And now we're left with what? Well, it's not oxygen deprivation to the brain, so what is it? And it doesn't follow from the fact that it's yeah. not de- oxygen deprivation to the brain, that it is, therefore, life after death. See, there's a big gap. And yeah. so that is, I think that's why people are, are afraid of that. See, a near-death experience is something you can imagine happening to somebody else. This other guy got inspired, not me. Whereas, you know, that it's easier to imagine that, oh, my gosh, I might be there at the death of somebody else, and I might have to have the... But this illusion that there's, we live in a physical reality shatters itself as you grow older. I had the very great experience of being a, as Derek, doing a year of geriatric psychiatry in the VIP clinic. Because let me explain, in a small town, you got to have some sort of arrangement where the chief of police and the mayor and the town celebrities are known all over the world go to a clinic for their psychiatry for all of them, right? Where they're not having to show up at the front door of the mental health clinic. And, and it's just, and the little towns I've lived in, it's a reality. And, you know, it's, it's kindness. So I was it because I was the oldest person there and I was known for my book. So for a year, I talked to this very eminent people, and most of them were there for loneliness. It was quite quick to figure it out, wanting somebody to talk to, or, or situational stress. But repeatedly, I heard this same comment. Raymond, you know, the older I get, the more when I look back at my life, it seems like it's been a movie or a script or a play or a novel or a drama. They'd use different words, but it was all the same thing, pointing to the inherently narrative character of human consciousness. You know, the way you experience your life is a story. When something new happens, you put that event into your continuing life story. And so, you know, it's this intrusion from elsewhere, which you can think of as the near-death experiences and terminal lucidity and shared death experiences, this apparent great barrier we hold on to between this life and the next life begins to get kind of porous. And so, you know, that's very troubling to people who are not curious. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's if you've got a rigid frame of thinking that you're holding on to, it doesn't, you know, is not going to work very well with this. Right. And I think, you know, that touches upon as human beings, we like answers and a lot of people resist change or the unknown, right? I mean, how many probably people have you sat with that say, I don't like change and I'd like to know what's going to happen. So yeah, this blows everything open for more, more questions and less answers. 
And, you know, that, that can unsettle people. Yeah. So we have a little bit of time left and I wanted to maybe leave a little bit of a cliffhanger too, for you guys to talk a little bit about or touch upon it briefly, the concept of psychomantium. And that was the the first time I had ever heard this term about mirror gazing and looking into the mirror to be able to make contact with someone. And I'm actually doing a book club that is very similar to this concept. So I was like, oh, here you go. Here's the synchronicity. Christina Rasmussen, where did you go? I don't know if you're familiar with that book at all, but this is a book in trying to connect with your deceased loved ones. And mm-hmm. when she had somebody die, she began to like imagine this portal in this doorway and, you know, kind of kept doing the same visualization over and over again and was able to connect, I believe it was, with her husband. And so, you know, this psychomantium process that you actually built, you know, in your in your place and you gave you give instructions at the back of the book and how to do it. And I'm all over this now. Uh, I was very excited to read about this, about how these experiences and this technique can allow you to make contact or at least 25% look like the number of, you know, your research kind of talked about 25% of people were able to make contact with deceased loved ones either during this process or after they left looking into the mirror. So um, I was wondering, maybe we can kind of end the show a little bit on this topic just to get it in there a little bit because it's so cool. Yeah, and exciting. Well, this is, you know, to me, this is one of the most amazing stories of history. How did we get to be the logical beings we are? We are? Well, it came from ancient Greek philosophers who were affiliated with these institutions called oracles of the dead, which were specific places that you would go and they had various procedures during which you would seem to see and converse with the, your departed relatives and friends. And so, you know, this was just, I guess, embarrassing to people. You know, what does this mean? Well, it turns out when you study the archaeological remains of these places, it's plain what they were doing. And it's, it's known all over the world and was part and parcel of the culture of America and Britain until the late 19th century when Everybody knew that, yeah, if you want to talk to Grandpa, just set up a mirror in the room and in the dark, you burn a candle and you sometimes you have a chant or a nonsense formula to get your mind into some altered state. And the reality is that under this circumstance, it's actually in my research, it was about 50% of the people who on the very first attempt, would go in there and say, yeah, I talked to my grandma. And I quickly realized, by the way, these were my, initially, these were my psychology graduate students, a number of whom had already been counselors. They were just back for further education. And and then my a medical colleague in town and a sociology professor, like my Professional colleagues wanted to join in, but it was all curiosity. Let's set this up and see what happens. And so nobody was more surprised than I. I went, my colleagues started coming out of there saying, no, I saw this image in my mirror, but rather I talked to my grandma. And, and you know, this is 
my point here being this is interpreted to be a real event, which is the most surprising thing to me. But people will say that, uh, and, and this this requires preparation. That's like I would talk with them about the person who had died. What was this person like? What were the happy memories? What are some of the difficulties in the relationship? Just as you would in a counseling session. And then you enable you go put them into this room where they can see into a mirror with no reflections, like you're gazing out into infinity. And lo and behold, grandma appears. Or people say grandma appears in the mirror. So other people say, yeah, she appeared in the mirror, but she stepped out of the mirror right into the room. Or I myself crossed through the mirror and I went to this place, and that's where I met my relatives. And about a quarter of them, as you were mentioning, April, have some further elaboration of this after they get home. That, you know, the person will appear to them at home. And, and, and this has been known since remote antiquity. And I'm not a historian, but I have one suspect as to why this suddenly dropped out of our consciousness in about 300 A.D. <laughs> And and was, you know, but it keeps reemerging because over the years, people just it's an it's part and parcel of the human makeup that we can have visionary experiences, which from our point of view, we cross over to the other world and we talk to departed relatives. Yes. Well, I want to thank you both so much for being here, continuing to co-author books together to provide the language for us to talk about this and, you know, kind of take the mask off of these stories, put these stories out there, collect them, do the research so more and more people can say, oh, that's what it is. You know, like Paul was saying, oh, I've had that experience. Now there's a name to it. So we just thank you so much for all of your your time and dedication to this area of life and afterlife. And, you know, just I'm so grateful, so grateful to sit here with both of you and have this wonderful conversation today. It was a lot of fun. I'm grateful to you, April, and I'm also grateful to all the people listening in and watching. Thank you all so much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Yes. And can you guys just, again, let our listeners know one more time where they can find Proof of Life, Afterlife, and also just reach the two of you? Well. You can find Proof of Life After Life at Amazon, at any streaming service, if you'd like, or at your, you can order it or get it at your local bookstore. To get a hold of Raymond, it would be lifeafterlife.com. And to get a hold of me, it's paulperryproductions.com. Great. Thank you. Thank you both. And thank you all so much for tuning in and listening. I am sure this podcast is going to um, get you very excited to go out there and purchase this book so you can read all of the stories. There was just not enough time in an hour to get through everything that we needed to talk about or highlight, but this is a wonderful book, a must read, and one that needs to be on your bookcase. So thank you so much again for being here and thank you all for listening. And I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Take good care of yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV. Visit path11tv.com to start a seven-day free trial of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com. And be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.